Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. This is your host, David Agronoff, back again with another interview based on one of the best books I've read in a long time. I'm very excited to have our author here, but really quickly before I before I introduce Haley, I just want to remind everybody, I try not to do all the like, hey, subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff. I don't like to do a ton of that stuff. But I am realizing I do need to do a little bit of that just because I need to remind people to do that because <laughs> I know that's part of the thing. So if you can help uh, support the podcast, the most important thing for me is sharing these interviews. If you like the work of the author that I'm interviewing or the person I'm interviewing, because I am trying to break out from just doing author interviews, please uh, share. And of course, uh, I don't have a Patreon, but if you want to support my books, they're always in the show notes. Uh, that's my favorite way that you can uh, support my efforts. Uh, but anyways, uh, we have a very special guest here today. Um, Haley Piper got on my radar with uh, when when the cover reveal went around for this, this book, um, The Worm and His Kings. And I was immediately interested. And then I followed Haley on Twitter. And she has all kinds of amazing content there just because this is a person I enjoy following. But anyways, uh, Haley, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Um, can you uh, tell the folks uh, how you got into horror and, and uh, what, we're doing, what we're doing here today? Uh, sure. I um, got into horror when I was little, um, seeing movies I wasn't supposed to yet, um, and just kind of stuck with it ever since. Today, I guess we're talking about The Worm and His Kings from Off Limits Press. Well, we can um, we can talk about all the other stuff, oh, sure. like the stuff leading up to it. I, I want to get there and we're eventually going to do spoilers, folks, but we're going to try to stay non-spoiler free at first and then hopefully create a spot where people can pause, read the book and come back if they haven't read it yet. But I know a lot of people have read it because there's a lot of good praise out there. So you grew up in New York. What part of New York did you grow up? I, I saw in your bio, it said by the haunted woods. And now that has me curious too, because that must have played a role as well. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I grew up in like the Catskills area. Yeah. I just, there was woods behind my house and it was scary at night. You'd hear all kinds of things. And when you're little, you don't know what all that is. I used to think Bigfoot was back there, but then I realized I learned that he was only in California. So, but <laughs> I didn't well, give up. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I I spent a fair amount of time in upstate New York, uh, lived in Syracuse for several years, which is a lot further west. But I think New York State beyond the city is underrated for its spooky woods. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And um, definitely, especially up around there, uh, Adirondacks too, there's just some really... Uh, uh, beautiful nature but did you have uh, any particular now you said horror movies when you were young but did you have a kind of horror fiction origin was there somebody who you discovered first or or spoke to you first as a writer 
I mean, I started reading Dean Kuhn's books like when I was nine or 10, I think. I snuck into my mom's room because just the the covers were interesting to me. They looked very serious and adults. And I was very much like, I want to be a serious adult. So I will read this. And then finding like um, Mr. Murder and Intensity. And I think my favorite was Watchers. Mm. Um, Intensity is my favorite because I'm not a big Dean Coons fan, but I think Intensity is incredible. Yeah, I haven't read them since I was preteen, but yeah, they, I mean, they were fun back then. Well, yeah, I, I do think Intensity is the one that, I read as an adult and was like, wow, like <laughs> this is, this is actually really good. Cause you know, some of that Coon stuff didn't, didn't age super well, but um, he wrote so many books. Exactly. He's still writing so many books. Yeah. Yeah. You can't write that many and have them all be perfect. Right. <laughs> okay. So that's how you got into re- reading. Now, did you, did you always want to be a writer from, from, from the, from an early age? I mean, partly I wanted to tell stories. Um, I know at one point I wanted to like be a movie director, but it kind of just fell away as I read more and more books. You know, I graduated like, you know, I was reading R.L. Stein and uh, Stephen King and just, you know, just absorbing so much. So it, it was pretty early, though. And I think when I read once I read it, uh, Stephen King's it, that was when I knew definitely like I was like, I think six, fifteen or 16 but I definitely wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And what about that book? Was it um, seeing the construction or being able to pick part, like how it was, how it was pulled together? Was that what it was? Or I mean, I wasn't, I don't think I was sophisticated enough yet to, to dissect that stuff. I just knew it had an intense, like emotional weight upon me, all the, the, the layers of the adult stuff and the childhood stuff, like going back and forth and just the, breadth of imagination like I think a lot of people don't give that book enough credit for the scope it has especially by by the finale um like that was definitely my first brush with cosmic horror well and for me that I was just old enough and had just like discovered King when when the because he put out four books that year it was like the one that when I showed my my father how thick it was, he he didn't believe me that I was planning on reading it, <laughs> right? And uh, but he bought it for me, and um, it was funny because I I had the experience of trying to explain it to my dad like very early on, and as a I think I was in eighth grade, so it was kind of a funny experience. But for me, one of the stories that did it was there was a Stephen King story called The Raft from Skeleton Crew. Stephen Graham Jones and I talked about that story a lot because it was, it was fundamental for him too. But for me, that was the first time where I like, I figured out like, Oh, I see what he's doing here. I see how he's putting the rungs on the ladder. Right. So I I do think that those, those literary influences are from young age can, can play such a huge role. That's kind of one of the reasons why I feel like I always want to want to ask writers that stuff, even though it can be kind of a cheesy question. But that's important. Yeah, yeah. And that leads me to because the, the writing and in, in, um, and I admit I've only read Worm and His King so far of your work. Um, but the writing in this is so assured. It's so confident, um, at least to me, to my eyes, it is. And it and so I you know, one of my questions was, are you a classically trained writer or self-taught? You know, I I can't really tell from reading it if you're a 
MFA graduate or, or self-taught, but oh, I, I'm no, interested. I, uh, no, I never had went, I, I never went to MFA or anything like that. I, um, a undergrad in English literature. So just a lot of reading, not much writing stuff, but I, I think I've just been writing manuscripts since I was 16 and like, they weren't, they were not good back then, obviously, but like, you know, that's, that's how you learn. It's just, you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and, you know, challenging yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, and that just makes it all the more impressive too, because look, I'm a self-taught writer too. So, you know, I don't have anything against people doing the MFA programs, but I, I do. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do understand, but I get impressed when I see somebody, because I know, you know, it's that thing of where Stephen King has said in the past, you know, you can't really be a writer without being a reader. And I think you Absolutely. can, yeah, you can, you can tell the people who are, are, are serious readers. And, and so now we talked about some of those influences, you know, when you were younger, but what are some of your influences now? Cause I'm sure they're very different. Oh, definitely. I mean, you mentioned Stephen Graham Jones and he is just incredible um, honestly, um, Sarah Tantlinger, just, um, her poetry is just, I just absorb that. Like I need more of it constantly because it's just, it's so gorgeous. And, but with describing the kinds of feelings and, um, aspects of horror that, you know, make it what it is, um, Ramsey Campbell, um, there's a, there's a few, like, um, it's hard to, it's hard to say off the top of my head sometimes. Cause it's just, I read so many books. I try to at least. Um, and there's so many talented people right now. It's funny because, and I did it too, but I think the comparisons to Clive Barker are, are, you get a lot of those comparisons and I don't know if Clive, you didn't mention Clive Barker in that list, but and I see the Ramsey Campbell thing. I, I really see that now that, now that you mention it. But um, um, how has that been for you that you keep getting these comparisons to Clive Barker? I'm, I'm definitely flattered. Um, the funny thing, I have an interesting background with Clive Barker because his my first brush with him was not uh, his fiction. It, or Well, it was his fiction, but not like written. It was the Hellraiser that I saw probably when I was 12, I think. and <laughs> Very young. <laughs> But but that really had a huge influence on me as far as like, you know, being, because I was, my mind was blown. Mm-hmm. I was seriously just like, I, that that really changed how I saw a lot of things. And I didn't really fully finish digesting that for years. So like, it's not like with, with Stephen King's It, it was like, I read it and immediately it had this impact with Hellraiser. It was like, I don't think I could absorb it yet. I had to watch it many times over like the next few years to really digest it and kind of like see how much it had changed, how I saw things. So I have, I've, I've only read, unfortunately I've only read a few of his short stories. Um, I I'm really behind on my Clive Barker, but it is, it is a big deal to me when I see the comparisons there. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the short stories are where I see the comparison is um, there's a very specific voice that Clive was developing during the um the early years with the short stories. And I think the vibe that you've got in this novella really kind of meshes with that um, in an interesting way. I, I'm not even sure I know how to describe it. It's just, 
I felt it. And because I was feeling that before I read any other reviews or saw what anyone. Oh, else that's funny. Saying. Cause there's so many that say that kind of thing. Yeah, I know. And, um, and I think some of his more cosmic stuff, like a magica and some of the, like the later stuff I could see. Well, partially just because of the realms and in a magica, but anyways, I'm sorry. I could, I could, um, <laughs> tangent on Clive Barker all day. Um, I, I just think it's a really big compliment too, because I think people, oh, totally because one of the other things, um, one of the, one of the things that's interesting about those early years and why I think the comparisons to, to worm in his Kings, it's such a kind of prevalent thing. I think is because people are missing that vibe, right? Clive hasn't, I know we're going to get some more stuff here soon because he's kind of back writing again but i think people just are looking for something that has that kind of otherworldly um feel but also very character um driven right and so i think that's a lot of it so your your first release as far as i could tell was the possession of natalie glasgow which like i said i've only read this novella so it might be a good time to tell me <laughs> and the listeners uh, about this book or if you want to start, like, what was the progression? Like, I, you said you had, you've been doing manuscripts since you were 16. Are any of those ones that you feel like someday you could recycle or someday you could turn into something else? I mean, um, there's one that I've been kind of like, has gone through so many different transformations. And right now it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's being looked at by people. Um mm but it's, it's so different. Like it's practically a completely different organism from what it was like, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, but I know that that's where the seeds of it began where me writing whatever nonsense I was writing when I was 16. There's one that's coming out next year from also from off limits press, um, a light, most hateful um, that started when I was, how old was I in 2008? <laughs> like 22, I think I st- when it was when I started it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just gone, it's gone, it's very different than what it was back then, but it has kind of like just gone through these different metamorphoses until it is what it, what it has become now and that it'll, it'll be finally getting a release. Um, so there are a couple that have, you know, gone through things. A couple others need to probably stay right where they, right in the past where they were. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, Jeremy Robert Johnson, who wrote The Loop, he and I have for years joked about how it would be amazing to put out an anthology of all the cheesy stories that <laughs> established writers wrote when they oh, were God. kids. <laughs> Unedited, just exactly. Oh, God. Like, oh, no, I'd be I would die of embarrassment if I were to do something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's kind of the I think that's part of the idea. I know one year at Bizarro Con, he read he read from a story he wrote when he was like 11 years old and it was absolutely hilarious and I definitely have a couple of those myself but so the possession of Natalie Glasgow was that your first like seriously published work or um yeah I would say so I mean I it's independently done at the same day was my first short story publication in um from things in the well uh press I think was the name so it was kind of just this joint thing it just happened coincidentally happened that way um and it's just been god where am i now 60 plus short stories later 
that's a lot. That's, that's really very productive. Yeah. It's, it's going to be, I don't know where it's going to be by the end of this year. Um, but yeah, so possession like Glasgow or T-Pong as Laurel Hightower is, has dubbed it at this point. Um, Benny Rose, the cannibal King, and then the Worminous Kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so um, what can you tell us about these two books, starting with possession of Natalie Glasgow? Like, how how do you uh, pitch this this to people? Well, it's a kind of a uh, it's it's your it starts with as kind of your typical exorcism story. Um, there's a single mom. She's got a pre adolescent um, daughter who's acting strange at night. Um, doctors can't explain what's going on. She calls in. She gets desperate. She calls in a. Um, she's not sure what she is, paranormal researcher, spiritual person, um, a witch, some people call her, but, um, and that's where the story begins. I, I, I had tried to write it from like when the first symptoms start with Natalie, but it just wasn't working. I was like, why not just start, why not just start when, when paranormal researcher shows up and just, just get on with it. Uh, Yeah. So, well, that's, one of the fun things that about writing a project is when you can organically see like, this is, this is where it has to go. I think for me, like the biggest deal for me on writing short stories, like where I had the breakthrough was when I realized nine times out of 10, I almost always could cut the first page and a half where I was trying to introduce the world. It was always yeah. just jump right in, you yep, know, exactly is, 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 is better. Um, I am terrible about submitting short stories because I just, I get overwhelmed with looking at markets. And so most, most, I, I have two short story collections, but what, what happened was is very few of them got published in other sources because I get very lazy about that. So when I hear you say how many short stories you've got out there, I'm very impressed um, (laughs) (laughs) with your ability to find homes for them. Like how, how um, you you must be really driven on that. Talk to oh, me I about love short the- fiction. I love it so much. So yeah, okay. I, I want them to get in front of people. Got it. And what is it about the short form that most excites you? You can do so much with it. I feel like you can really tackle ideas or characters or even um, that, that a book might not be able to sustain. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it, there's something so freeing about a short story because you can just go you can go to the deep end with it without really having to worry about a, a, a narrative that can sustain 100, 200 pages. Even just if you're in a mood, which I get into a lot, um, if there's just something that's on my mind or something, I can try to write a short story around that thing. And I don't have to try to make a whole book out of it. Um, I can just get it out of my system a little bit. Um, and hopefully weave it into something interesting that people will want to read. And my hope is get something out of. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, maybe two or three short stories that are your favorites and where we can find them? Oh God. Um, that's really hard. At this <laughs> I know point. that is hard. Uh, I'm sorry. One, <laughs> I mean, one of my favorites right now, unfortunately, isn't, isn't published yet. It's, they haven't actually announced the anthology for it yet. Um, it'll, it'll be a witch-themed anthology from Cemetery Gates Media later this year, I believe, or possibly early next year. Story is um, Magic Loves the Hungry. So yeah. when that novelette comes out in that anthology, um, hopefully people will go check it out. Um, there's, 
I tried to put a bunch of my favorites in the uh, short story collection that just came out from the seventh terrace, unfortunate elements of my anatomy. Um, so definitely from there, a couple of my favorites are feast for small pieces, which was, um, in year's best hardcore horror volume five last year. And, um, my new novelette recitation of the first feeding, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard because like even that just that book has 18 and I was trying to choose like what I felt were the best I had written up to that point. And so it's just like and since then, there's been a bunch of others. So, yeah, it's hard to choose favorites. Brian Evanson and I talked about this in an interview that hasn't gone up yet, but we talked about how he compiles a collection and whether he was trying to think about them in a straight order does he want his readers to read them from page one or can they bounce around how do you feel with this um with your collection that is it out now or is it yeah coming it came out, out uh, may 7th oh okay well now i have homework to do right away <laughs> get that um and so how did you compile this did you put a lot of thought into the rhythm of the stories or does it yes. matter Okay. I think it matters. Well, here's the thing, because if somebody's going to bounce around, you have no control over that. So I feel like the best thing to do is to try to find a flow, because there are going to be people, people who just read it from start to finish. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of go with Ellen Datlow's um, outlook of it, to that your your most important stuff is your first story, which is because you want to you know think about how you're getting people going, and you want to think about how you want to leave them. Um, so those two are super important. You also want to have like, in, like, and this is just stuff I pick up, but just like mm-hmm. three really strong stories at the start and try to keep the longest one towards the end. It doesn't have to be the last story. If that's not, if it doesn't end with the feeling you want the reader to leave on that just happened to work out that way for this collection. But um, yeah, I try to keep, the length varied also and also try to think about how the mood flowed because like the second story in the collection um the law of conservation of death is probably the most depressing story in the collection so it was kind of important to me to provide some contrast and i did a i put a humor horror story right after that to try to you know let people know it wasn't all going to be gloom and doom the entire way through (laughs) I did the same thing uh, very intentionally in both yeah. collections. Um, and then just try to, to try to think of what was going to flow together. There was like a story with a dog was important. I kind of put those close to each other. There was just different thematic stuff. I tried to find a flow. It seemed to work out because I've, I've heard people say they had a hard time stop to stop reading when they were supposed to. So hopefully I got it. I did good. Mm-hmm. And was the title from a from is it the title of a story or no it's um that was a funny that was a funny situation originally it was going to be called named after the first story feast for small pieces and I was talking to my wife one day and I'm not even sure what we were talking about but the words unfortunate elements of my anatomy spilled out and she stopped me mid-sentence she was like write that down right now um <laughs> And I did, and it did become a line in one of the stories, and it became the title of the collection. Yeah, it's a cool title. Um, well, one of the, um, you know, one of the funny things too is that it's it's almost right now. I think a lot of times it's the easiest thing to just pick a story and say like, "Hey, that's 
I'm just going to use that title or this is, this is my favorite, but coming up with something that thematically um, kind of explains the collection or gives a vibe or whatever is, is it's so cool when you can, when you can come up with something like that. Yeah. I I do like when John Langan, um, the titles of his are usually some weird thing based off of the whichever story title. It kind of mixes it together because like Children mm-hmm. of the Fang isn't like Children of Fang and other stories. It's Children of Fang and other genealogies. Right. Um, I like I like kind of that kind of thing, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is that is cool. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I think um, um, sometimes when people come up with those uh yeah, it just separates. It's just it. It's just kind of comes up with a cool way to describe stories. Yeah, just having it be that. Are you a pantser or a planner when when you're writing? I'm ninety nine. I know. I ninety nine point five percent of the time a, a planner. Okay. Um, there have been like two short stories that I've pantsed, um, and then yeah, most of the time. And and I mean. I'm pretty flexible. So if I'm going along my outline and better ideas come up, I will shift gears on things. And, and usually, but from that point, I'll then plan out all the changes that I'm intending to do. And that'll happen as I go. Um, I think the other thing I kind of, like I tried to pants something and then I ended up after I finished the first chapter, I ended up planning the rest of it. So it only like got pants. It only, it only was for the first chapter. I am a religious outliner. So yeah. uh, I, I'm with you um, on that. And the way I always, you know, whenever people say it's like soulless or whatever, I'm always like, well, you know, if you look at a map of a city, it doesn't mean you've experienced the city. Right. You got to You got to go there and, and you can always change. Right. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say exactly what you're saying. It's wild what you'll realize while you're writing it and how wrong the outline was from the start, but. Mm-hmm. It's but yeah, you can always change things if you if you rig figure it out better. It's not something you have to. You you don't you're not contracted to stick to the original outline. Yeah, this uh, screenplay I just finished. We uh, um, it is almost unrecognizable from the original <laughs> outline, um, and a lot of that was me having to let go because of my writing partner was much more willing and and his uh philosophy on it was that he likes to just go as weird as possible early and <laughs> and dial back right and then say okay that was that was you know and some of the ideas for the original thing were just so insane and i was like oh, okay i don't <laughs> think it's going to work but then when you dial back it's it, what i learned about it was is that the other thing too is you're never married to the outline. You can always go back and change it. You can always go back and re-outline. I've always I've always done that, but um, for me, like a lot of times, once I get into the three act structure, when I get towards like kind of when I'm hitting those milestones in the story, I like to go back and and look at the outline and make changes then because I, I've learned about the characters and those kinds of things. But um, but anyway, so. All right, let's get into non-spoilers for The Worm and His Kings. I, I, th- this, wow, this book was so great. Uh, but I think at the foundation of it, and, and I like to say I, I'm usually right when I guess if somebody's a pantser or a planner, because I can usually tell because I'm a plot and structure person. And when I read this, I felt um, I felt like, I was in very good hands as far as I felt like 
it was, it was, it had good structure. Anyways, but the <laughs> characters, Monique and Donna, are so fundamental to this story, and the fact that, um, I think that they're interesting characters that they come from a, a background that we're not usually used to seeing in horror, which is that they're homeless, right? Yeah. It kind of created something different too. Can you tell me about how early in the stages of this story were, did you outline them as characters like early on or did, or did that part come organically? Oh, um, I'm trying to remember. That's not a question I get much. <laughs> and I probably should have left that for spoilers, but I just, I want to give. <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't I think that's give people a spoiler. A, cl- a clue into these characters because I think they're so fundamental for what makes the book interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm like, I'm honestly blanking on Donna a little bit. It feels like she just walked fully formed into my head a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I'm, I'm completely blanking on her, 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 my, her conception in like in my imagination, like she's so, she is so fundamental to everything that happens. Um, Monique, I know where Monique came from because originally there was a different situation. I had the lore of the worm first before I had the, the main story and then that wasn't working for me. Um, that other character, that other plot was more like what Corin experiences in the book. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't clicking with me. And so I kind of had set it aside for a bit. When I came back to it, I had written a, a short story where there was a character who was also, um, you know, homeless and she doesn't go through anything like what Monique goes through, but um, she kind of made me start having other thoughts about how to approach the Warmness Kings. I was thinking about Freedom Tunnel. I was thinking about, you know, just just kind of the the scope of New York City and how lost people can get inside all that, how people fall through the cracks. And Monique came from there. Monique came from those thoughts and realizations. Um, as far as their like their backstory and stuff, um, that stuff was was just things that just made sense to me. Like the, I think the more you think about characters, the more they reveal about themselves to you, and that becomes stitched into everything else you're doing with them. So we'll we'll come back to them as characters and developing them as characters when we get to spoilers. But how do you how how do you pitch this book? Because the way <laughs> um, the way I described it when. I'm kind of always publicly reading at work and stuff like that. And, and um, I have specifically one coworker who always wants me to tell, tell her what I'm reading and what it's about. Uh, this was one that I mostly was just like, you know what? I just think you should read it. Um, <laughs> if you want to borrow it from me, you, you can, but I, I think you should pick it up. But I basically said that it's, it's cosmic horror with a very personal story at the heart. Of, and, and I described it as about, and it, just that people that have fallen between the cracks in New York city, but I think New York city is such a huge part of this book as well. So yeah. how do you pitch it? Um, I, I honestly kind of, I mean, with, with Twitter and stuff, with the short amount of space you have, I just kind of, I do say just queer cosmic horror. And that mm-hmm. seems to be enough to get people's attention. Sometimes as far as the story goes, I will, I'll kind of just say like um, this, this woman's girlfriend has been missing for three months. Um, she's going to look for her and she's been looking for her and she 
um, one night, it seems like there, there might've been this monster walking the underground that's taken her. And then in that search, she finds bigger things that go, you know, go as far back, you know, in time and, and space and all the ideas that we know about the world are wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, look, it gives enough mystery to kind of get people <laughs> to like, like, oh, I wonder what she does discover. And is she going to find her girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the most important things that I think people are looking for these days in horror fiction or fiction in general is, is a book that nobody else could write, right? That it comes from a singular voice, a unique voice. And I think your connection to the characters, your your feeling of social justice that you bring to it, uh, clearly the influences and the writing ability is, is kind of creates this stew of something that where I just, I felt like I was reading something I had never seen before, right? Mm-hmm. So I like the queer cosmic horror because I think that's, that's, it's a good way to put it. And of course I was saying like, this is a great pride month purchase that you can make. Yeah. But I think that singular feeling like, and I don't, I don't need it to be, I don't, I just, I don't, I need books. It doesn't matter who, where the perspective comes from. If you're talking about Joe Lansdale, for example, a lot of his books are very unique, but he's like an East Texas guy. Right. But I like his books because it's unique for him. And so I don't want to like say, I don't want to oversell like the, you know, all the unique things that you bring to the perspective in the sense of just the quality is so much of, of, of what it, and, and the singular voice is so great in this book. Anyways, I'm sorry if that came <laughs> off as awkward. But no, just, you're fine. Um, but I, I love, I love the, I, I love the feeling that like I was reading a story that nobody else could write. And, and do you, how much did you feel that when you were conceiving this? Like, did you, did you feel that? Cause I look for that feeling when I'm writing, you know, like this is a book that only I could write. This is my, I you know, guess. I mean, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't really think about that stuff while I'm writing. Um, I'm so focused on the characters and themes and the, the atmosphere. Um, I'm kind of have to isolate what I'm doing from how, how it feels in the grand scheme of things, because, um, otherwise I will get paralyzed by having, by overthinking things. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of have to write it as if no one else is going to read it first. And then after that, try to make it try to make sure I, I am going to be able to communicate it to other people. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't really think about that with, because if, if, if somebody else were to write something like it, it wouldn't bother me, I guess. Um, if that makes sense. Like, and I, I write stuff, you know, that's similar. Like, I mean, Benny Rose, the cannibal King is like, that wouldn't exist without all the 80 slashers for just as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, you know, we're all part of, you know, this bigger scheme of storytelling and such, um, you know, we build off of each other. Totally. Right. That was a good answer to what you were saying. Oh, no, it was great. (laughs) Um, The other thing too, well, Joe Lansdale, speaking of him, like one of his favorite pieces of writing advice is write like everyone you know is dead, (laughs) you know? Um, Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm, there's a, my, my first novel is coming out later this year and I'm really hoping none of my family reads it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, definitely 
felt that, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, so before we get into spoilers, just uh, if there's anything else that you want to say about the Worm and His Kings outside of like the actual writing of it, you know, um, I think one of the cool things about this, and maybe we could talk about this in a way that doesn't, isn't like a major spoiler, but I think the the Freedom Tunnel, which is like one of the main settings of the story, um, I got the idea, and I may be overanalyzing this, which I tend to do with fiction, but the, the Freedom Tunnel, for me, it, this it's this tunnel in New York City that a lot of homeless people have kind of made their home to get away from the from the elements i got the idea that it was called that they were calling it the freedom tunnel in part because it was their way to kind of survive outside of the system and yeah i as far as i'm aware that is why it was it was called that so it's a real place it's a real yeah that's okay that's complicated um it the re, part of the reason that this is set in 1990 is because early on like maybe first or second page Monique speculates about like they should really like leave the tunnel alone let people keep living and you know in the shanty town there that isn't what happened in the mid 90s I think Amtrak started using it again so no one lives there now mm. um and it's actually you're not really you're not supposed to go there like you can get in trouble it, like people go there anyway and they'll film YouTube videos and stuff but like you're not supposed to go there Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because um, that's a running theme that I, those places that people kind of congregated in pre-internet for different reasons, yeah. like um, like punk rockers used to, you know, th- those of us who are old enough to remember punk in the 80s, um, when we didn't have message boards that we could hang out on, we <laughs> we usually would pick like just a random location in Chicago, for example, they all hung out at a Dunkin' Donuts that everyone called Punkin' Donuts, right? <laughs> that was, um, that's now an apartment building um, uh, is on that spot. It's just really sad. And so I actually ended up writing a, a, a novel about skinheads and werewolves called um, Boo Boys of the Wolf Reich. And a lot of it takes place in <laughs> Punkin' Donuts. And a lot of the, 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 the when I was reading about Freedom Tunnels, it kind of reminded me of these these places that people would congregate when, before the internet when you know you just this is a spot where people were hanging out those kinds of things like every city had one like yeah I, yeah like my hometown of bloomington we had a park called people's park that everyone hung out in and chicago had pumpkin and i know indianapolis they all hung out in a parking lot by a flower shop which is super weird um yeah but, there was a there was a strip mall in my town that that people would gather at so yeah like yeah it's everywhere people find a place People find a place. And what was interesting to me about Freedom Tunnels, it felt like one of those those places in a little different way because it's, you know, obviously they're living in in, in this situation, but it's it's cool to hear that there's there's a history and there's a place. But so without getting into to total spoilers, but the mythology of the worm, you know, because a lot of people when they write cosmic horror, they just they crib Lovecraft, you know, to, to do this. But you create yeah. your own mythology. And yeah. I I mean I yeah I had this idea about kind of like because I love like um, paleontology stuff like just the just the eras of the world that the world has gone through and I wanted to incorporate that into mythos and it kind of grew over time with this 
this idea of this cosmic worm that had broken Pangea into um, all the continents that didn't just happen naturally, that it was this other force and just what that would be as far as the the present day was concerned. Mm -hmm. And for reasons that, well, I'll get into that in spoilers, but, uh, (laughs) but um, your book is very connected to my favorite uh, thematically to my favorite horror novel of all time, uh, Wet Bones by John Shirley, like in a, in a really interesting way. Um, and I don't know if you've ever read Wet Bones, but um, uh, yeah, because I, I assumed it was a zeitgeist thing that it was like, uh, but we'll we'll get into that in, in spoilers. Spoilers for Wet Bones too, because, <laughs> uh, but actually I don't think it'll ruin the book, but, um, but uh, that is my all-time favorite horror novel. So when I was reading it, I was like, oh, it's kind of neat. It's, it's like this, because uh, I, I, I assumed it was an unconscious connection. But anyways, um, so so before we get into spoilers, just the, the last part of this interview is just going to be Haley and I geeking out about the, the craft of composing this this novelette. But from now, here, here at this point, if you're still listening, just um, uh, Off Limits Press, the, the Worm and His Kings. This is um, a really great introduction to Haley's work, at least as far as I'm concerned, because it's my introduction and I loved it. I'm going to pick up more of her work, especially the short story collection is definitely on my radar right now. But you can get this. You should get this. You should read it. Pause this in your your, uh, podcatcher and come back. Uh, It won't take you long to read it. I... I could have read it in one sitting, but I actually, um, I slowed myself down in order to enjoy it a little bit more, which is something that um, is a pretty big compliment for me because (laughs) I'm a fast reader, but uh, I got to the point where I was like, I I really want to savor this one. So, all right. So we're in spoilers now, uh, everybody. Um, Oh boy. All right. So now, Haley, you can feel free at this point to say whatever you want about the oh, good <laughs> conception of this. I like to think of this as the, the portion for the people who have read it, who are writers that like, what can we learn from, from, from reading this? I know you're, you're a young writer. You're, you're fairly new, but, um, but wow, I think there's a lot that writers can learn from this. Um, I was super impressed with your skill and ability from almost page one. We already talked about Panzer Planner and now balancing the cosmic and personal. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's something that's really important in this book. Is this something that you thought about in the outlining stage and making sure that, you know, cause sometimes I think having a rhythm of like, this is going to be a very character centric part or this is when i'm going to do these reveals about their their background these are things that you can cook into the outline how much did you think about that before you even started i didn't really i kind of my my approach with rough drafts is that they are going to be rough even if i've outlined so i kind of was just trying to focus on just getting the plot through you know focus on when she was going you know how far she was going to start with things when that's not the right way when this when the story would be getting like when when are we coming into this with Monique and then when is she going to first find Donna and then how is everything going to fall apart later and then just everything in between those things um I don't yeah I um 
it's mainly just a matter of feeling it out and being willing to change things. Like, um, for example, some of the backstory with um, going on about like her with Dr. Sam or with, you know, them, them losing their, their part, you know, Donna's apartment and then Monique's apartment, just the, the cascade of, you know, unfortunate luck that they, you know, unfortunate situations that they were in more of that was like early on, like a lot more of that was chapter one, but it felt like a, too much front loading. So it just yeah. got moved around a little bit. I think it's easier to, to, you can, you can plant those things through the book and I ha- I've noticed like sometimes readers will lose the details of the things, but they'll get the main situation of it. They'll get the main sense of it and what's important. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite pieces of writing advice, the director of Silence of the Lambs said in, a, in an interview, a random magazine interview that I read years ago that I always quote this, is he said, you can, um, said, you can confuse me for 15 minutes, but don't bore me for 15 seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I think having a little bit of confusion early on is almost better because, you know, I'll, I'll follow you along and know that I'm going to, if I'm going to get more of the character later kind of thing. Yeah. And so now I, th- I think when someone's a, when you establish someone's a person, once you can get that across to the reader, they'll follow along and then they'll trust you a little bit better with like, okay, we're going to find out why Monique, what, what, why Monique is hurting. Like, what is she talking about with these scars? We'll find out more about Donna um, as we go along. Like those things, those are things that you can, you can wait once you've established who the person is a little better. Yeah. And I think that that was a great narrative choice to kind of push that back because um, I'm already invested in, yeah. in um, Monique and Donna when um, and it becomes more heartbreaking when you <laughs> hear a lot of Monique's backstory because I, I'm already invested in this character I already care about what's what's happening to her so now was the mythology with the worm that we we've already talked about a little bit in non-spoilers but you had that was that was all kind of cooked ahead of time or um thought out? yeah mostly um i i would say most of the big parts of it were i didn't under i i had to figure out the cult itself a little better as i was writing because um there was a, a previous draft of this started very different where monique wasn't really interacting with the cult she was kind of more sneaking around a lot more and it just wasn't working um, like you said, don't bore me for 15 seconds. It was good. It got a little, it got a little <laughs> boring. And I was just like, I don't want to do this. Um, not only does it not leave her people to interact with, but it also um, didn't give the cultists much character. And I didn't feel like the reader was getting to know them. And I wanted to do something different with them, which is why Lady is how she is where, cause I was like, I didn't want the like creepy stoic cultist kind of situation. I wanted someone who was thrilled to be here, like was more like a, a somebody who wanted to convert you. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just somebody who wanted to scare you and was like, you know, chanting Latin under her breath or something. Yeah. Cause she really believed in it. And, oh and, yeah. And she yeah. was, she was excited. She like, so I think that was a so, big part, yeah. <laughs> but, but you see, but you see a different thing with, with um, like when Bouchard is leading choir with Donna's talking about a world without hate. And I, that's mo- one of the most important elements of the back of the 
the lore and the worm is that none of the humans involved in the story know what they're talking about for certain. They're all putting, they're all projecting a little bit onto this. Mm -hmm. It really comes across quite well. Now the parallel that I know I said this in, in my review, but to me, storytelling is all about parallels and reversals. That's always like, I'm always looking for the ways that the characters parallel each other, the way the characters journey parallels the theme theme of the story and ways that we can turn around and reverse these things. And one of the things that I thought was really cool, and one of the reasons why I believed in my heart that you were a planner is because um, all the, the reveals, parallels and reversals in this story all work really, really well. They're all really solid. And, and, one of the things there's there's a, a quote in the book and I've got it right here. It's uh, the wounds of this world will be unmade. So says the king scars never go away. Monique said they will when the worm remakes the world, the worm changes you. Now, this idea that um, the people who believe in the worm, right, like lady, they they are welcoming this change because they don't you know, they're, they're forgotten people that have fallen behind under the cracks. Right. There are people who are marginalized. So they want to see the world change. They they're, they're ready for it. And that makes an interesting situation because then we have Donna kind of coming to this for, for a reason, because, you know, um, we've been in part rejected by this world and, and want to see it change. And I think that that is one of the, the things where the parallels and reversals match the theme so well in this story. So anyways, the first thing I want to say is just compliment you on job well done because that was awesome. And that particular line where the idea that the worm changes you, that, that idea of transformation coming from the worm and being the worm's motivation um, that connects back to the beginning of the mythology with changing the world from Pangea, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's, they, they presume that because, I mean, the worm, essentially the first timeline where it was the Pangeans, um, you know, had lived on and on up to what would have been modern time. They didn't do what the worm wanted. So he changed the world and it cost them. And now the humans are here. So there, the assumption by the cult is essentially, if we do what the worm wants, then the worm will give us the kind that will again, change the world, but the way we want it to be. Mm, right. Which um, kind of thematically reminds me also of um, uh, Octavia Butler's um, God has changed in the, in the, um, parable books but um in a in a, in a really cool way um <laughs> i love that i love that about the mythology of of where it becomes the other thing i like about it is it, it's cosmic scale but it's relatable motivation for the people to connect to this thing because the worm's ability to change the world is grand and cosmic but the way that the people who interface with it is, is personal and human. Was that a happy accident or something from the very beginning that, that you wanted to. I mean, that came with the characters. Cause I think, you know, with the worms lore being what it was and the fact that he, his, 
how he works, how he is, is going to be interpreted through people, then all of that ends up mattering, you know, based on the characters. If there were, excuse me, if there were a bunch of scientists who were just like, you know, if there were, if it was all people like Corin, for example, there, we would have a very different book because Mm -hmm. they wouldn't think the same things about the worm as Donna and the, and the cult does. Mm, Yeah. Well, and what's, what's really, um, Okay, so now I kind of tease this with the similarities to Wet Bones, but my all-time favorite horror novel of all time is John Shirley's Wet Bones, and it's somewhat Lovecraftian kind of cosmic horror-y thing to a degree, but the cosmic creature in the book feeds off addiction, right, and manipulates. There's um, There's a serial killer in the book who can control this, this creature that um, feeds on your addiction and and basically can make people do awful horrible things so he doesn't have to do it himself so it's um and john was was fighting um was trying to get clean from heroin when he wrote it so it's a very angry very um intense horror novel and okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool but what was neat for me was is that the worm in this book it's not exactly the same but what the worm does in this book that that reminded me of wet bones was it the worm can play to your desire for that change for that that it can find some of your deep, deepest darkest hopes and desires for change and really manipulate them in a really scary way. At least that's where it felt like to me. And, and and that's what really spoke to me on that. Was that, was I reading something into it that wasn't well, there? Here's the funny thing. So I think that the neat thing about the worm is that even the reader is going to have their um, understanding of the worm based on what the other characters are, are saying. Cause we don't know, like if you, if you, none of the characters know what the worm is, definitely. Like there's even a question is, is, is there a, he, is it, is there, is this even a God or is there, is it just a gravitational anomaly? Mm-hmm. Um, like Cor- Corin brings that up. There's like, they're just worshiping gravity. And so, I mean, you can definitely look at the worm that way. Um, I think it's the, I think it's the way a lot of, um, you know, different organizations or any kind of, hierarchical structure is going to have a point where people feel like they can get what they want if they do what they're supposed to do with it. But like the worm, I mean, it's all stories and hypo, um, not hypotheticals, um, but just interpretations by everybody. Like the, we never really get to see what the worm does aside from either smash continents or prevent the smashing of continents. Like that's, and now we get to really get into spoilers but like one of the questions it's so interesting me this is like super super big spoiler so people are still hanging around wondering uh, should probably no, no, go I, they should okay, not um, listen to, to any of this if they haven't okay heard it yet. so one it's interesting me nobody's actually like asked me so did monique actually become the worm at the end or did she die and the worm was changed by her mm-hmm and no one's asked you that and you don't no really one's want asked to me that, and i'm not going to tell them either <laughs> right right and that I, no but that transformation is is that's one of the parallels that, that right and that's that's why 
when I say queer cosmic horror, a lot of people assume, okay, it's a cosmic story, horror story that has queer characters in it. But it's like, no, it's not just that. Thematically and baked into the lore is this queer sense because it is about this transitional stuff. It is about this transformational stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what she may or may not become at the end. And, right. And this ability for this creature to to possibly make you into something that 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 you maybe desired or wanted to be but didn't understand right you know as as it comes which is one of the totally genius um (laughs) in construction um as far as you know those parallels in which you know and when i say that i love parallels and reversals it's like if i see a parallel like that i just i it just i geek out about it because i'm just like <laughs> wow that's really it's really powerful stuff so um to me one of the and i do want to i do want to talk about dr sam and and that whole thing a little bit yeah but that because yeah that's heartbreaking stuff but i think the most powerful the most powerful part of the book, and I, I'm sorry to do this, but I have it in front of you, so to read your book back to you. But to me, the most powerful part of the book was the, and here in the darkest place, Monique found monsters. Maybe maybe if her parents knew how far she had fallen, they would at last regret having banished their only child. Unlikely, that was her imagination preying on her thoughts with something more painful than monsters and the illusion that her parents could accept her. Like that was crushing when I read it. (laughs) And um, I'm the type of reader that when I read something like that, because I know I'm going to write about a book because that's, you know, I started doing the reviews because I wanted to absorb books more than just read them. Right. Like, I don't really care if anyone reads my reviews or not. Like it's nice that they do, but (laughs) it's more for me. And this was a line in the book that I really, I read and reread and, and, and thought a lot about because it just jumped out at me on there. So, but there again, that that's another way that this is, is queer, queer cosmic horror, because I think, um, you know, and, and thankfully we have a lot more acceptance in 2021 than, than, than we did. And I don't, I think I might've mentioned this in the, in my review, but I, I had a, a close friend, a, a roommate of mine in 1999 who transitioned and, and had, and went through the gender dysmorphia stuff. And, and he came out of it with a lot of support, like his family supported him and, 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 and is now, you know, as, as far, as far as I know, you know, had a better situation than some people, but you know, back in the past that we definitely had even less support. So reading this was just very heartbreaking for me. And I don't know. Unfortunately. And like, it's, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, um, you know, Monique was pushed out when she was 18 and we still have a lot of queer homeless, you know, problems these days um, with people not being able to come out of the closet and then stay in their homes or stay with their families and be cared for and cared about. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes this part of the story so important. I do think it's kind of a spoiler. That's why I put it in spoilers. But I yeah, do no, think, I, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but I do think I, I do think um, that storyline and somebody who gets pushed out and 
it has to deal with it is is one of those things that that adds to the book that it makes it something that people need to read because it's 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 a, a point of view that we don't see often in horror and, and it's, yeah I've, it's, I've had um a few times people say this is the first book they've read with a trans protagonist yeah well and and for some for an important part of the story is you know the and I know here in San Diego we we have um they have a really cool support network for for um trans uh homeless in San Diego and it and homelessness is a big issue here because like people come here because they think it's easier to live homeless where the weather's pretty awesome all the time so um so it it is a a big issue but i think that idea that monique was dealing with that her parents completely rejected her she ended up on the street and then her partner her lover chooses this transformation and this this worm and that's where at the end of the mystery is is this question like do i do i accept this cosmic change awesome um just really cool stuff but um yeah and i don't really have a question i just love to (laughs) i just wanted to tell you how great that was and and hear your thoughts on on, i mean was that she had to have been homeless from from the beginning of the idea that had to be baked in right right yeah once once monique once monique was that was one of the early parts of monique was that because it was going, it was already starting to blossom from her that this was thematic, that this was significant. Because when 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 an or when a when a cult or an organization that's looking for people, a lot of times they will try to find people who are desperate, and that this was going to connect with her in some way. You know, I didn't have all those answers right when I started, of course, but you know, they're the kinds of things you do figure out as you're you know, as the characters are revealing themselves to you and you're figuring out more or more about them and more how they connect with the themes and lore and other characters. Mm-hmm. Now, sorry to talk about my own work here a little <laughs> bit, but um, I wrote a book that hasn't found a home yet last year that has a, a trans character and I made the choice to never, uh, to not point it out pretty much, <laughs> right? I just- yeah. I just there's little things and there's there's clues that if you know but i i just wanted it to be i just wanted her to be a character in the book right and just not yeah. and um one of my trusted readers who read it i was glad at one point they said hey is this is this character trans and i was like yes and then they were like okay just just check in but for me like it was a a, a line it, being that I'm cisgender, you know, I, I wanted to be very careful on it. Now, for you writing about these issues, it's it's very different. And um, I think heading into the issues with Dr. Sam and those kinds of things, I think was definitely moments that I had never seen in, in, in a horror novel and felt like um, just as heartbreaking as those moments with 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 that were um i just felt really happy to in a sad, in a sad way to to see that highlighted in in a horror novel was i think important but yeah um, i agree yeah so, um i think a lot of people don't 
realize a lot of the stuff that goes on around them if it's not, you know, related to their experience. Um, and I do think it's important to get into that. This is stuff that happens, you know, trans, trans people who are desperate because our, our healthcare system is garbage. Um, right. Go do go to back alley doctors like Dr. Sam and try to make, do the best they can. They don't all meet somebody who's like Dr. Sam, where he's like, you know, connected to the um, black market with organ uh, stuff, but you know, still, I mean, it's also a horror book. So I, but, but, and the, I'm sure there are people like that too, mm. but um, yeah, it's just, it was, it was important to me to reflect these things and, um, and also kind of dig into some of my own, you know, fears and concerns and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was all very powerfully done and, and, and it just adds to the, the things that make the book important. Um, at the same time now, when I was writing about it as cisgender, you know, person, um, you know, I was also wanting to be very careful to let the book do those things and not, um, and there were certain things that I thought, um, I, I shouldn't be writing about because I, for one thing, there are huge spoilers and <laughs> for, for one thing. And then two for, um, uh, I, I can't do it justice, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, there's, that's the way with a lot of books, but, um, but yeah, it, this, the, it was a really powerful part of the story. So the last thing I have on the, on, on the, the, the spoilers, and then, um, you've given me an awful lot of your day and I really appreciate that. <laughs> I'm happy uh, to be here. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, w- does the, where mythology grow from here, or is this, this a one-off? Um, are we, are we going to see this world again? And were you thinking of that while you were writing it? When I wrote it, it was just a one-off. I felt like I told everything. Um, right now I'm thinking about some things. I'm not sure if anything will come of it. We'll see what happens though. Mm-hmm. Um, so and now because I did this in spoilers because I think it could be like a spoilery <laughs> thing but the last thing I really got is um, what's the most like kind of weird and hilarious um, not hilarious hilarious or not hilarious ways that people have interpreted this book because I think that's one of the funny things that happens when you put something out like this in the world uh, you know, I, it's happened to me before where people like see a totally different story out of something and I'm just like, okay, I wasn't going for that, but okay. Yeah. Like, um, there've been a couple, um, it's funny. I wouldn't say funny on its own, but it is interesting how differently some people interpret the ending because, um, most people understand what happens in it, but they don't have the same reaction to it. Um, some people, are kind of like just kind of like stunned other people like they're very upset which is interesting to me because um other people are like well that was a very like a very peaceful ending to the book um which is like all of those are interesting to me because it is it's not an ending that I think you can have like kind of a um a whatever reaction to right um I'm not sure um though like some people have said this is a lot of fun and I was I'm just like it was <laughs> <laughs> um well but, I mean that's that's up to them 
I thought it was fun in the sense that even when I'm being like heartbroken by scenes and like where it's like, you know, freaking me out, like that's, I'm having fun because I'm like, I'm in the hands of a, a awesome storyteller. And, and and that, that makes sense. I'm always, I'm always confused about how to interpret that because like, I'm like, but weren't you, weren't you miserable a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no, no, there is the balance on that. Um, because yeah. there are definitely miserable moments where <laughs> well for me too, when when it when an author can make me feel miserable, I'm so impressed. Um it's not like I want that necessarily I just want people to feel something. I want to get I want to bingo. Yeah. connect. I want to connect and have a genuine emotional reaction and you know contemplation and such like that's my main goal with sub like benny rose has gotten such interesting things because some people like this was the best gore i've ever read and i'm just like i'm glad you enjoyed the book but i mean i feel i was hoping there was a little more to it than that (laughs) right right yeah yeah. i no, i can see that now for (laughs) me a lot of times like when i read a moment that's really heartbreaking like that last part that i read like there can be a moment where I'm reading a book where, cause I, a lot of times I read at night, I put on music and I, and I read, and then I just sit there. And if I, if I out loud, just go, oof, oof, <laughs> like at a part in a book. Um, I was just reading this last month. I also read Brian Evanson's new collection, the classy burning floor of hell. And there's like maybe 18 wolf moments in that book where I'm just like, oof. And, uh, I had that a lot in this book and that's when, when I know like, you know, okay, this, I'm feeling something I'm feeling like, and I think that's horror fiction at its best. I don't know. And I also feel like it's, it's incumbent on the readers. You're never going to find something scary if you don't put yourself in the shoes of the characters. And so that's our job is to make characters that you, that are undeniable, that that kind of come off like that. And that's, uh, more so Monique for me than 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 anybody else in this book, but Monique was very relatable character, and for that reason, the book just really worked for me. And so that is funny and interesting that they that you know, yeah, I I could see that this book would have different interpretations that would be fun for uh, for an author to sit back and be like, okay, yeah, I'll that? be honest, I don't look at a lot of that stuff um, because. I get, I mean, I think at a certain point as an author, you get the temperature of the room on a book mm-hmm. and, you know, you kind of aren't looking as much. So, so a lot of the recent reactions are more people like, like for, for you example, coming to me and telling me how they felt about it, as opposed to me, like kind of keeping an eye out for that stuff. <laughs> right. Right. Which well, I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. And, and that's one of the fun things for me about doing the podcast is because it gives me a chance to talk to to writers and and you know uh, learn from everybody um about what makes their books tick and this one was 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 so good so i i hope to talk to you again in the future about other work um lovely yeah i i uh god this was great uh so the worm and his kings um was this always intended for a standalone book or or did it just kind of grow out of I mean, there was a time where it was going to be a novel and that wasn't working. And there was a time I tried to do a short story and that wasn't working. And this ended up being the, the right, you know, was perfect. Uh, right compromise between those lengths. Yeah. But, you know, 
if of mice and men is considered a novel it's 107 pages so um, it's hard it's isn't that difficult it's it's so it's so complicated with and and then you get into like you know if you have a book that's like gigantic and like all the letters are huge then like you know it can be more pages and it's just it's such it's so complicated so that's why I think that's why I think each book should just be as long as it needs to be like just this tell the story don't pad it out or cut away what's what's important just just tell the story and and that's what people really appreciate I think absolutely all right um Haley it was amazing having you on postcards from a dying world and um I definitely think that um you know uh you are a writer wise beyond her years and uh I I can tell we've got a, a lot of great stuff coming and I am <laughs> just so stoked to read this. Um, and it's funny because I, you know, it's one of those cases where there was a lot, there, there was a lot of hype and I was like a little nervous that it wouldn't live up to, to the hype and, and it actually exceeded what, what I was expecting. So that was great. It's been an interesting experience with this, with this book, particularly. Do you feel that this is a, a, a turning point for you where you, um, came into your own because I don't um yeah I mean I think I think there was definitely a point where I was like realizing I, I definitely this was a turning point I I feel like I with my earlier books I was still coming I was coming into my own but this one was definitely like definitely a career turning point but also yeah as a storyteller because um it kind of help me get a better idea of what I want to do. Um, like, I think the possession that I Glasgow has kind of the least of that in a way, because I was testing waters. I was seeing if like this, this idea was going to work. Um, Benny Rose is more of like very like, you know, er, feminist kind of story mm-hmm. for me. And this one was more just like kind of sinking into things and just letting things be what I wanted them to be. And that's really what I've been writing since I wrote it. And what I've want to continue writing is just doing what I want to do. All right. And next is queen of teeth, right? Yeah. And that was, that's probably, that's, that's probably even more so than this one. It's just, I just stop. I, I tell people when they ask about it, I'm just like, I just stopped saying no to myself at every turn of that book. I just didn't say no to myself. And it still went through many revisions and changes um, to help sharpen into the best story it could be. But I really just was just like, is this too weird? And it's like, no, it's not too weird. Just do it. Just keep going. Just do things. Um, That's how we get unique fiction. That's exactly right. And that's a great way to end. All right, Haley, thank you for joining us. I know I've said said goodbye twice because I thought about it. It's okay. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah, folks, check it out. And um, where can people find you online? I'm at uh, com, and on Twitter, I'm at Haley Piper says, and on Instagram, I'm at Haley Piper fights. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> great work. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again. Hopefully. Thank you again for having me.